you know, there's, there's this powerful quote that really hits close to home for me. It was written by C.L. Lewis. And he once said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And I truly, truly believe that those of us working in the specialty court arena have an amazing opportunity to change the ending. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Rosie Medina from El Paso County is joining us today to discuss programs that serve the kids in the community. We're gonna talk about data and the importance of continuously evaluating your program for effectiveness. As always, you can join our conversations by sending me information to thepodtask at gmail.com. And be sure to stay tuned until the end of the episode for more information. Now let's get on with the show. Hi, Rosie. I'm so excited you're joining us on the show today. Hi, Liz. I'm excited to be here too, and especially representing the drug court field in Texas. Before we dive in today, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and just briefly describe your current role and the work you do? Absolutely. So uh, my name is Rosie Medina. I am currently serving as the Chief Juvenile Probation Officer in El Paso County. I also do some consulting work uh, for All Rise. And historically, I've also done consulting work for the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, as well as the Office of, Mer- of American States. And what is the website where people can go to learn more about the specialty court programs that we're going to talk about today? The highlights for our Juvenile Drug Treatment Court, as well as our Project HOPE, which is a mental health court, the information for those programs is located on our website, which can be found at www.juv.epcounty.com, and you would find that under uh, programs. Let's take a step back and talk a little bit more about your career experience before getting into your current role and a little bit about your personal life. Can you share with the audience uh, what should they know about you? I am a proud graduate from New Mexico State University and back in 1997 when I was still in school, I was afforded an opportunity to uh, have an internship with the Third Judicial District Court. And my internship was with their juvenile uh, pre-prosecution diversion program. And through that program, I was introduced to the juvenile drug court program at the time. And they had two tracks. One track was for the pre-adjudicated population and the other was for the post-adjudication. So my focus was the interface with the pre-adjudication. And I absolutely fell in love with the work that at the time Judge Cornish was doing with the program participants as well as the families. Um, It really just hit home for me because I do have a sibling who has suffered or has struggled, I should say, with addiction since the age of 14 and now he's in his early 40s. And the transformative work that I was witnessing, you know, it really made me truly reflect on some of the system failures, I guess. I would say that my brother had experienced and it also helped me better understand addiction and what may be some of the causal factors being a sub a sibling group of four and he being the only one who um, was experiencing the challenges of addiction and through that i learned of uh, the impact that traumatic brain injuries have especially those that occur in the frontal lobe that can you know that i knew my brother had experienced at birth and then subsequently when he was about three years old and what role that may play in his impulsivity and potentially his his addiction So it was just such a huge learning event for me that I have, you know, the last 26 years, 27 years of my life have been committed in one way or another working in the specialty court arena because I have seen the impact that it has made in the lives of not just participants, but also of the families that surround the participants. And, you know, it just offers a lot of hope for me and, and for our community as a whole. So, you know, in, in a nutshell, that's, that's what really has stemmed my commitment to, to this field 
within our criminal justice system. And I hope that even after I, I fulfill the goals that I've set for myself as a chief juvenile probation officer and I enter retirement, my, my goal is to one way or another continue to be connected to specialty courts in my community, um, in our state, and hopefully across the nation as I do now. Um, you know, contributing what I have learned and my experiences and being able to support the dissemination of, of information to individuals and, and specialty court professionals across the country and even internationally, being able to highlight the successes and even the challenges that I have encountered or my teams have encountered um, in helping develop others so that they can be successful in implementing their programs and their in their jurisdictions or in their communities. I think that is a very worthy goal. I'm sorry that, you know, you've you've had those challenges with your sibling, but I will also say that I know that it comes from personal experience. I think that really inspires people to do a lot of this work, right? From knowing somebody, caring about somebody who's impacted by this type of stuff is is often what inspires people to say, you know, yeah, it's a lot of extra work. Yes, you know, there's a lot of things I'm going to have to do to be on this journey, but you keep going forward because you know that the work that you do really does impact somebody because you have somebody you care about that's impacted. And so I, I think that you care so deeply about this work um, and not just locally, and not just statewide, but on a national level, knowing that this work impacts so many people across the country. Okay, I'm gonna uh, stop talking about that. Um, I'm instead gonna ask you a little bit more about your current role then. So as the Chief Juvenile Probation Officer, what is that role exactly? So as the Chief Juvenile Probation Officer for El Paso County, I'm responsible for managing a $28 million budget. We have a manning table of approximately 280 employees. Um, now, within our department, we have a strong clinical unit. We have our probation, our intake unit. We have our special programs unit. We have a detention facility. We have a post-adjudication residential facility. We have um, our, our own maintenance department, our own information and systems and records department, and we have our accounting department. So we're, we're a pretty large uh, department. Um, we are governed by the juvenile board and we are attached to, to the county. They serve as our fiscal administrators of our budget. Um, but we are governed by a juvenile boards, which I report to. Um, so all of the referrals that come into our department through law enforcement, which currently um, last fiscal year, we exceeded over 2,200 referrals to the department. We process all of those through our intake department. Um, we also house, um, we have two associate judges that are housed within our building. So the vast majority of our court hearings are um, on site and we provide uh, on site services, clinical services as well to our population, as well as referring them out to the community stakeholders who play such a vital role in the work that we do in our community. We would not have the reach that we need to have in order to meet the complex criminogenic needs that the youth present before us. And, and those needs are ever-changing. Um, so it's it's a pretty large operation and we have an amazing team of juvenile justice professionals and support staff that help accomplish the various goals that we have within our organization. I know that you've had a lot of experience uh, working with special court programs in the past yourself directly. Can you share a little bit more about that that you haven't already talked about in regards to the work that you've done specifically with special court? Absolutely. So in 2003, I joined the team in El Paso and I began working on the design of the juvenile drug treatment court. In 2004, we moved into implementation without any grant funding, but we did have the support of the probation department as well as one of our local school districts to get our program off the ground, which in my opinion 
is probably the best way to implement a program because the most important thing, in my opinion, for any type of specialty court is the sustainability factor. So we began not relying on grant funding. And I truly believe that that's what has helped us in, in truly sustaining the program. Uh, once we were able to, uh, you know, collect some data and, and prove our viability, then we began applying for grants and, you know, growing the program, um, enhancing, expanding. We started off in 2004 with a capacity of 12 and focusing only on the female population. And then in 2000, around 2006, we expanded to including a male, a separate male track. Um, so we had very specialized and targeted uh, services based on gender to include the court hearings were also separated based on gender. And that was at the direction of our judge. Um, he felt that it was important to create a safe space, um, especially for the girls free of distractions um, and just, you know, being able to give the dedicated attention that was needed. And then, you know, we serve 24 youth and we have two dedicated officers, probation officers to our juvenile drug treatment court. Uh, we have you know, been around since 2004. We're going to be celebrating our 20-year anniversary in June of this year. We had the same judge um, lead our program for 18 and a half of those years, which we were very grateful for his dedication and commitment. And it's something that's not common. Uh, we do, you know, our specialty courts do experience changes in the judicial leadership often, um, which can, you know, impact right program operations or philosophies of programs so we were truly blessed to have have the judicial leader for as long as we did um, and many of our staff members have been part of the team longevity is there amongst the team uh, we have one of our probation officers was with us for 19 years she most recently promoted to a uh, probation manager uh, the current a uh, probation manager that oversees our drug court program was previously a drug court probation officer. Uh, so she's been with our program now for 19 years as well. One of our case managers, 18 years. Um, so we have it longevity. We've had uh, the same treatment provider agency, not necessarily the counselor, uh, has been with us as part of our team for over 12 years. So we are blessed to have consistency um, and we definitely have had our ups and downs back in 2015. Um, those that have worked with me for a long time, I'm, I'm, I'm a very big data nerd. So not only collecting data, but also in the utilization of data, we had identified that there was definitely some opportunities to improve our program, in particular in the areas of outcomes, and also how long the youth were remaining in our program, and some of the decision making that was occurring in our program that may have been negatively impacting our outcomes. So through that, uh, the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges had released an announcement um, for a juvenile drug court learning collaborative initiative where selected jurisdictions would receive consulting guidance to engage in you know program enhancements for about a two-year period so we did submit the we submitted an application and we were blessed to be selected and we began our partnership with National Council in 2015. It ended in 2017. And we did some amazing transformative work. Uh, we had to have some serious, courageous conversations because the data doesn't lie. And through those guided conversations, through the consultants from the National Council, we were able to um, revamp certain components of our program. And we have been able to um, see the benefits of of those programmatic changes um, and you know to be quite honest with you we're, we're at the point now here we are 20 24 seven years later um, where we're going to need to pull the same data and we, we which we do pull the data on an annual basis but come back to the table and have some courageous conversations and identify where we may have some opportunities to improve. And that is something that I truly believe every specialty program needs to engage in continuous quality improvement 
on a regular basis. And most importantly, in, in my opinion, again, is that we need to reach outside of our comfort zone and engage um, national stakeholders, experts in the field, to allow them to kind of come in and provide us some guidance because it's not until outsiders come and look in that really opens our eyes to where we have opportunities to do better. Because if we keep it insulated to just our team and our own interpretation of our data, I, I myself am guilty of, you know, justifying, right? Well, it's because of this, or well, it's because of that, or we can't do this, or we can't do that. And it's really an outsider that comes in with fresh ideas and fresh perspectives that really, in my opinion, open those doors for some transformative work. And we were blessed that we did it then. And, and I truly believe that we have an opportunity, hopefully in the near future, to do some of the pre-work and then you know, reach out and find a consultant to come in and, and help guide those strategic conversations that need to be had amongst the team. Being the data nerd that you are, I know that you you know quite a bit about the use of data in program evaluations. So I'd like to talk more about when you were able to use data to identify when one of your programs wasn't working the way it was intended to. Because I think it I think it is important that people understand that what might work in a program initially may not continue to work or at some point it is important to evaluate the programs that you have to determine if it's worth having that program, not that's not even the right term I want to use, not whether or not it's worth it, but whether or not it's actually working and doing what it was designed to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to talk about your experience. So earlier in the podcast, I touched on the um, Juvenile Treatment Court uh, Learning Collaborative Initiative with the National Council that we participated. We applied in 2014 and we participated in the initiative between 2015 and 2017. And that um, we, you know, prior to applying, um, I pulled data and analyzed the data um, and definitely identified where there were some areas of opportunity for improvement, but it was the how, you know, it, it's, it, we kind of identified the what, but how do we accomplish that? And, you know, again, the, 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 and I mentioned this earlier, is the credibility with the team to engage in those courageous conversations. And I've been known to say, you know, our partnership with the National Council uh, with Dr. Van Warmer and Wendy Schiller, you know, coming in and in essence, they were calling, you know, what I would refer to my, my juvenile drug treatment court as my baby. They were calling my baby ugly. Some components of my program were ugly. They were not performing. And for a minute there, it's like, ouch, it hurt. I kind of knew that already because the data was painting the picture, but being able to have a third party come in and say, hey, guys, like, you know, there's opportunities here to do better. Um, you know, we're here to, to, you know, do no harm and and we want positive outcomes, you know, yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, from a team perspective, especially, you know, your your team leader is your judge and all the judges, you know, believe that their program is the best that there is in the country. Um, but the data sometimes paints a very different picture and having a third party facilitate those courageous conversations and lead strategic planning for, you know, initiatives to kind of transform and do things a little bit differently and be able to get the entire team on board. It was much easier at being facilitated by a third party than me doing it myself within my own team. Through that process um, of engaging in, 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 in the strategic planning and in these conversations, I learned some very valuable skills through the National Council and all of their consultants. And through them, I've been afforded, not just myself, but the judge and other team members have been afforded that opportunity to be that third set of eyes in being able to guide other teams and to offer guidance, perspective, look at their data and, and help other programs um, improve in areas that required improvement based on their outcomes. So 
Um, I, I've truly, I, I have to be grateful um, for the partnerships with the National Council and all of their consultants, because it's through them that not only were we able to effectuate change within our own program, but through that experience, I've been able to contribute at the national level as well as an international level in helping other jurisdictions improve their programs. And at the end of the day, it is the customer, right? It is the participants that are benefiting um, from the knowledge dissemination and the work that the teams do to improve their programs. So it's it's that little grain of salt um, that was provided to us in El Paso, and then we have been able to then spread it to other jurisdictions with these national organizations being the conduit to make it happen. I think that's amazing. I, you know, I think it's sometimes can seem like an overwhelming a goal to redesign a program to even consider redesigning a program. Um, and I think that it is hard to hear sometimes if something, you know, isn't, isn't as good as you thought it was or hoped it was. Um, and that's a whole process, right. Of just accepting that and, and then taking that and making, doing something productive with it, right. With that information. Um, and I think these programs, just like, like, you know, just like our community changes over time, the populations that are served by these programs, their needs could change over time. And the services or the policies or, you know, the, the ideas behind the original design should change. They should be changing. They should be evolving. Um, and they should be evolving at the same rate as the changes that are happening with the populations that they serve. Because we always hear that saying that the government's so far <laughs> behind the curve on things that it takes them so long to change. Um, but I think that's one of the things I really like about specialty court programs is you do have the ability to change much faster if you want to. It does still take a lot of work, a lot of effort, um, but as your populations change and your needs change, um, it seems that your program should in fact change and thus you should just always be on that like kind of cutting edge and doing exactly the kind of things that you're doing, which is really looking at the national level, looking, you know, being involved with with associations on the state level and just being aware of these things so that you can plan for them even. Right. We are going to take a quick break while I remind you about the Texas Association of Specialty Courts annual conference. It's scheduled for March 26th through 28th at the Omni Fort Worth. Our conference regularly attracts criminal justice professionals associated with the specialty court field from all over the state of Texas that are interested in serious issues facing our society in the fields of mental health, social work, counseling, community corrections, juvenile justice, law enforcement, substance abuse, and other related fields. The conference serves as an avenue for training, gathering resources, and networking to create a forum for dialogue on current issues related to special court programs. TASK invites you to join us. Registration is open and a link is in the show notes. DLE credit will be provided for Texas lawyers. If you are looking for an opportunity to display or sell your products and or services to conference attendees, TASK is still accepting sponsor or exhibitor applications. You can find the application on the conference page of our website at tasktx.org. Again, that's T-A-S-C-T-X dot org. Now let's get back to our guest speaker to learn more. So El Paso has like a lot of specialty court programs. <laughs> you know, some counties have zero um, and some might only have one, but really like some of the bigger counties that seem to have you know 10 or more but i think el paso has around 10 at this point including adult programs family programs and juvenile programs does that sound all correct yes and we most recently i believe this year our governor's office funded our first adult mental health court with judge solis great uh, so in the juvenile court programs though you have two specialty court programs there. Is that, am I getting that right? Yes, the juvenile, 
Yes, Juvenile Drug Treatment Court and then our, our Mental Health Court, which we call Project Hope. So what I'd like to do is kind of dive into a little bit more information about the Juvenile Specialty Court programs today. So let's start with the Juvenile Treatment Court program. I really want to talk about, you know, who do these programs serve and uh, how successful they've been uh, and, you know, how unique they are compared to adult programs, if we can. So with the Juvenile Drug Treatment Court program, I know that that program targets a certain population. Can you share with me? So our program targets um, young men and women that have been um, adjudicated for committing delinquent offenses that are between the ages of 14 to 17 years of age who are at a moderate to high risk to reoffend, and who have been diagnosed with a substance use disorder. So that that's who we target. We um, as we're screening participants for the program, of course, we are looking at other factors to determine, um, you know, suitability, obviously, for the program. And something that's really important for us is, you know, does the child have a supportive network um, that is going to be able to engage and participate um, in the services? So what's unique about the juvenile system in comparison to the adults is that in Texas, the parents are parties to the petition. So once the child is placed on probation, the child is provided with uh, conditions of probation and certain things that they can and cannot do. Um, those conditions also extend to the parents. So our parents are, um, the courts are required and expected to participate in the child's treatment services. They're expected to report to court. Uh, same frequency that their child is supposed to report to court. Something that may be unique to the El Paso program, but it's, you know, allowable, is that part of our orientation packet uh, is our parents also sign a consent to be drug screened. And what we have found over the years is that sometimes the youth are a symptom of a much larger problem and the parents themselves are dealing with their own um, their own traumas, their own addiction issues. And we truly approach providing services to the entire family and not just the youth that is in our system. Um, so, you know, not surprising to us, but to, it might be surprising to others, but it is not rare that we uh, have parents that are testing positive for drugs. Uh, when that does occur, um, it, we're not going in and filing contempt on the parents. We are truly coming in from the angle of, you know, we've identified there is a need. We refer the family to our local OSAR. An assessment is completed. And if there is a recommendation for treatment, then that expectation is set for the parent that they too will be working through the rehabilitation. Obviously, we're required um, to report to CPS, so we do what we have to do, but we're truly coming in from, from the lens of helping, of rehabilitation. Uh, we need to have a healthy family in order to have long-term success. So that might be something that sets us apart or makes us unique, is that we're very inclusive, not just in the supervision, but also in the engaging of the family into treatment services if required. We also do require as part of our programming uh, for family counseling to transpire. And that family counseling can be with the parents or it can be with who the child identifies as who their natural support is. And it's not always going to be their biological parent. Um, you know, it could be an aunt, it, it, it could be an uncle, it could be a godparent. And those are things that we screen for once we open up these cases is truly identifying who those natural supports are in that child's life that can uh, you know, walk alongside the child and alongside us as we work on rehabilitation, we work on restoring uh, the ultimate goal of having them transition out of our system. Uh, sooner rather than later. In our jurisdiction, youth are placed on probation until their 18th birthday. Uh, for youth that do participate in our juvenile drug treatment court program, we terminate their probation upon their graduation. Uh, plus that's, that's important. We don't want to have them stay in the system longer than they need to. Does that program 
Is it pre-adjudication or post-adjudication? Our program is post-adjudication. Does that program seem to be working? For example, in fiscal year 23, our successful completion rate was at 73%. Um, we had a total of 15 kids that exited our program. And we had three kids that were in our program that we had to transfer out of outpatient community-based services into residential treatment due to um, you know their their treatment needs and and I'm sure that other programs similar to ours once we begin working our cases and we attempt to service them at the community based level we may identify or we have identified that community based is not the best option so we do uh, step them up into residential care and when appropriate and if needed we will step them back down through our program back into community-based after completing residential treatment. Our recidivism rate for fiscal year 23 is at about 8%, and that includes um, kids that began our program in fiscal year 22. And do you know how that compares to any of the state numbers or national numbers? I don't know what the state average is. I do know that the long-term outcome uh, for recidivism at the national level is hovers between 20 to 25%. So what I just provided to you right now is a, a short-term outcome, right? Because I'm just, I'm just reporting on the outcomes of fiscal year 23 we would need to run you know a study looking at you know three years prior four years prior now one of the challenges that we do have um, currently within our program and i'm assuming across the state is in order to truly do a good recidivism study we need to have access to, for example, NCIC. And because our population are juveniles, the children, once the numbers I'm reporting to you are recidivism occurring under the juvenile justice system, I'm not capturing if they've recidivated after the age of 17 and entered the adult criminal justice system because I can't run NCICs to give me that give me those numbers. So I know that there was recent legislation that passed that now allows for that collaboration with DPS for those research studies to be done. Um, I do feel that there's an opportunity to kind of massage that a little bit more and kind of figure out how can we more readily have that data more readily accessible to us um, because it is my understanding that it's the process on being able to get that information from DPS um, hasn't been fully vetted or set. So when we're reporting outcome numbers, we are truly just reporting what's occurring within the juvenile justice system because that's the only data that we can extract and report on. I think that's important to distinguish too because, um, you know, data can tell a lot of different stories, frankly, um, depending on who's looking at it, who's evaluating it, and what the purpose of, of that evaluation is. But a lot of times, I, I don't think comes up enough is the question of the quality of that data and what exactly is that data capturing to begin with. And I, I just appreciate that you distinguished um, what you're doing with that data and how you're reporting that data and uh, what numbers you're actually looking at. So when you're given a percentage, you're, you're saying where that comes from. And I think that's really helpful to know. Um, I want to dive into Project Hope a little bit more. Uh, can you share, you know, what the group of um, that program? So Absolutely. Um, so that population is servicing um, young men and women between the ages of 10 to 17. So it's, it's a much broader scope. Um, and we are targeting our low to moderate risk offenders in that program. Um, and these are young men and women who are presenting to us um, or have been diagnosed with a mental health disorder um, other than a substance use disorder, psychosis, um, autism, schizophrenia. Um, our community-based program is not necessarily um, geared towards that population. So the vast majority of the youth that we see within this program are children that are diagnosed with ED ADHD, major depression, anxiety disorders, uh, bipolar, uh, 
pretty much, I think that those are the most common diagnoses that fall under the depression spectrums or the anxiety spectrums. Those are the, the young men and women that, that we target in this program. These uh, young men and women placed um, in the program, we have a team of professionals. So we have a judge, um, we have two dedicated probation officers that handle the mental health caseload, along with three different clinicians, uh, two case managers, and what really I believe makes us stand apart from other mental health programs is that we also actually have a adolescent psychiatrist that is also part of our team. Um, and that really has, in, having that involvement has not just enhanced the team dynamic because there's a lot of education that goes on um, the team, but access to the psychiatric care for evaluations and med medication management. Um, it, it allows us um, be much more responsive in a timely manner to the needs of the youth where in comparison before we didn't have a quick access or availability to the scarce resource that adolescent psychiatrists are in our community. Yeah, that's actually pretty amazing to have somebody like that on your team. What kind of treatment provided through that program? That makes our program unique is that it's home-based. So the core team is comprised of the therapist, the case manager, and the probation officer. And the provision and delivery of services is done in the home uh, versus going into the office. There are occasional times where the services are provided in the office, but we really focus on home-based services because going into the natural environment where the children and the families reside truly allows the team to have a better understanding of the dynamics and the ability to engage the family system in the services. So we do provide individual therapy to the child and obviously the family therapy. We do have a group component. So the youth are required to attend two group sessions per month um, at the clinical offices. And we also provide for those that are diagnosed with ADHD, depression or anxiety, our provider also provides neurobiofeedback um, as a, as a as a way of enhancing um, and, at, and providing an additional service to the youth and to stabilize their symptomology. Yes, that's a that's a lot of uh, services. It seems like in that program. I'm curious about because with mental health programs, what I what I've seen is there is a a lot of money put into the programs, right? It takes a lot of money to do the, the work, I think, to properly actually serve the community that you need to serve, the population that you need to serve in those programs. And it's often questioned by people who are opposed to those programs that it's not worth it, that it's it's not a good use of resources for a community um, because it's just too much work, too much energy, too much time, too much, you know, too much money. Um, I'm curious what you've learned with the data and um, looking at the success rate and, and all of that in this program. Um, is this a program that's, one, necessary in your community? Um, and two, how do you know that? How, how, do you, how do you determine how important it is? As a program manager, as a chief, we don't just look at the program outcomes. We also look at financial indicators um, in, in determining, right, those are programs that are viable and, and that we need to invest in. And our Project Hope, our mental health court, is one of those programs where back in 2006, we were looking at for the financial indicators and the population we were servicing. And we identified that we were expending quite a bit of money on on placing kids in our Takumi program and those children subsequently were then being removed and sent to residential placement. So as a result of that, we redesigned our program and created it into a mental health court. So today we are expending on average around $6,000 in contracted services. So yes, that does not include 
uh, the probation officer time or their supervisor's time or my time per se, but the clinical time. So what we're paying our clinical pro um, provider to provide therapy, to provide case management and to provide psychiatric services is costing on average around $6,000 a youth. These are typically young men and women who are at risk of being removed from the community and sent to a residential placement. On average, our department is expending just over $25,000 per child to send them to a residential facility to receive their services. And then we're dealing with the reintegration and the family engagement. So to be quite honest with you, when you do have, um, when, or I should say, when we have um, a child who is at risk of being removed um, and we have the necessary recovery capital um, it may not be the best but we do have it within the community and we have a family that is amenable to working with us um, and the other supports within the community and we open them up what we have found is that we definitely save taxpayer dollars by keeping the children in the community um, and we eliminate the challenge of having to deal with reentry and reintegration after a child is removed for nine months on average, youth are taking anywhere between four to six months to complete Project HOPE successfully, dealing with the reintegration challenges. Uh, and our recidivism rate is about 8%. And when I say recidivism, it, I, I, it means that they've been re-adjudicated for a subsequent offense. And about 86% of the kids, so in fiscal year 23, 86% of the kids that participated in our program successfully completed the program and spent an average of about six months with, with us in the program. So from a fiscal standpoint, it's, it's, a, it's a smarter choice to place the child and leave the child in the community and provide them these intensive, coordinated, wrapped around um, services than it is to send them to a residential facility for nine months at, you know, a cost of about $25,000. So it's definitely worth um, every penny that we're investing in the program. I do believe, however, and I, I, I believe it's important to point out for the listeners is that consistency in team, we have had the same team, uh, probation officers, case manager, primary therapists, um, and psychiatrists since the program was re-implemented in 2008. And I truly believe that that is a strong contributing factor to the outcomes that we see in this program is because the team knows the program design. There's excellent team dynamic, team communication, collaboration. And I must mention, we've had the same judge since 2008 as well. So that team dynamic, I'm sh I know plays a substantial role in the outcomes that we see. Yeah, I imagine that team dynamics isn't something that you can like add into uh, data tracking, right? This to see how it affects everything. But I agree with you, right? Like I think that that consistency and having a talented team like that um, will make an impact on that data. The other thing I think might impact the data has to do, well, not impact the data, but that isn't collected really in data is how doing treatment in the community impacts, um, you know, a youth's mental health. Right. Or and not just the individual's mental health, but their family and um, the people they're connected to. Right. And so I think those things, those uh, kind of collateral um, impacts that are that are different, you know, from being doing treatment in the community versus going to a treatment facility might not always be um, identified in data the same way to show how it can actually impact and um, like a data, like its own data story, I guess. I'm really not using the right terms here because I'm not a data person. <laughs> um, I, I, I cannot say that I'm a data nerd like you, but it's, it's interesting to me because I think that 
there are parts of um, all of the special court programs that impact people's hearts and their minds and not just the individual directly who's in the program, but the people that they come into contact with, right? Um, whether it's their jobs, their schools, their, um, their friends, their relatives, their siblings, um, their family, all of that, that gets impacted and it's not all collected in data. You know, it's just, it's not all there. So it's hard to always, um, to only look at data in its own like silo, I guess, to determine whether or not a program is worth it or not. But you, you really evaluated that and, and explained that. Um, so thank you for sharing why this program is so important and, and how it is in fact um, worth every, every penny. So I appreciate that a lot. I'll jump in real quick into just uh, incentives and sanctions used in either one of these programs um, that might be a little bit different than are used in adult programs. Do you know um, offhand? Yeah, absolutely. So contingency management is really important in any specialty court. Um, so for example, programs, something that we have implemented is what we call MVP, um, or the most valued privilege. And that's something that we do in our juvenile drug treatment court, which is part of the orientation phase of, of our program, where it's really getting to know the child and engaging in, um, you know, establishing rapport with the child and with the family. And it's a way of encouraging positive behavior within our participants. Um, the NVP is a privilege that the participant truly values and will work hard to earn. This privilege should be developed with the family and we ensure that it impacts both change in the home and also within the program. So it's something that we can also utilize as that leverage, right? Like we need you to accomplish these milestones and then you will obtain this. So let's, in this day and age, the cell phones, we are all attached to our cell phones. And if you can imagine a 14 or 15 year old taking away their cell phone and removing their access to social media was probably the worst punishment you can ever do. Um, historically, prior to us doing some of this transformative work within our program, one of our conditions is that the kids were not allowed to have a cell phone. And when we really, you know, we really dug in, and this is where that third party consultants coming in and helping you at, assess your program and then identify strategies for improvement, helped us because what they what they shed light on is you're putting kids in, in your specialty program and you're stripping them of everything. So then when they get in trouble, you have to take away. And are you just resorting to detaining them? Um, very good questions. And, and that's what we learned is we need to find out what's of value to them and allow them to you know, for example, the phone, now they can have their cell phones, but we, for some kids, it's so important to them that when they're not doing what they need to do, it is leverage that the parent as well as the program has to be able to remove. And then you're clear in articulating what they need to do to get it back. But it's something that is of value to that child. So that's just one, um, contingency management strategy that we have within our drug court. The other is we have a, a system where we reward the youth for their participation in the program and the rewarded tickets. Um, and as they're making progress in treatment, their sobriety and their compliance with probation, they're eligible to earn three tickets a week. And once they earn 20 tickets and they're tangibly handed the tickets, they're made responsible for keeping their tickets and for turning their tickets in in order to redeem them. And they redeem them for a spin on our Wheel of Fortune. So we physically have a Wheel of Fortune that's taken into the courtroom and they're redeemed their tickets and they physically spin the wheel. And there's a lot of different prizes on the wheel that they can win. Some of them are of monetary value and some of them are not of monetary value. And we survey our the youth in our program to find out what is valuable to them, both from a monetary and non-monetary perspective, so that we can have those at our disposal and we can put those on the wheel to motivate them to earn their tickets and redeem their tickets. Um, you know, we also um, have 
or provide our team the discretion to award additional tickets on top of the three that they can inherently earn every week. Um, and that's really recognizing those kids that truly go above and beyond what is expected of them. And some of those examples are, you know, them being recognized, making honor roll at school, um, teachers recognizing them, or even their parents, you know, highlighting that, you know, John went above and beyond in completing his chores and helped the neighbor clean up their yard, just little things like that to really just incentivize them and help them get closer to that 20 ticket goal. Um, so those are just some of those examples. And then when we talk about sanctions, um, you know, it's, it's again, knowing what that most valued privilege is of that child so that you have something to remote remove from them and then they work on re-earning it. Um, you know, but the other is, you know, if, if we have relapses, we, we don't ref necessarily refer them as sanctions. You know, it's a graduated response and that's where treatment truly comes into the picture and, and assesses what is going on. If the child had, you know, three months of sobriety and there's a relapse, we need treatment to respond to that. We're not going to react and detain them or necessarily take their curfew away immediately. We need to explore a little bit more what may be going on, especially after a period of sobriety. Um, but it's truly getting to know what the kids, you know, what makes them tick. Um, there's curfews. A lot of kids really value having that freedom to, you know, hang out with their friends and, and do stuff. Well, they have curfews so they can, you know, earn to, to have a curfew that is extended, um, but they also can have that curfew removed. So that freedom to hang out is taken away. But we also work with empowering the parents because they really need to be managing the behavior um, and what is going to work for them in their home environment, uh, address any of the non-desirable or non-compliant behaviors. Uh, tension is utilized if the child is a, a danger to themselves or maybe a danger to others. Uh, you know, if, if we are looking, for example, at a child going into residential treatment and we just can't leave them in the community because they're continuing to engage in self-harm, we may have to detain that child and it may be perceived as a sanction. But at the end of the day, it's, it's truly more for the child's safety um, while we look for an alternative placement to address their needs. So about the community. Do you know if you guys utilize a lot of community resources or organizations to help, I guess, uh, you know, help support these programs to, to help with the success of them anyway? Absolutely. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned that. We, we do have community partners that we engage with um, and that provide various opportunities for our kids as well as our families. Um, to receive benefit from whatever the community agencies are that they do offer, right? Depending on the on the child or the family's need, but that is definitely one area where there is a gap. Um, in particular, where we as a as a department, not just the juvenile drug treatment court program, but as a department, we have identified that we need to do a better job. In particular, with pros. Um, pro-social structured activities. Uh, we have identified that one of the biggest criminogenic need areas in our population is the lack of recreation, leisure, and structured activities. And many of our families are indigent, don't have the resources, um, and our kids do have interests or previously were involved or engaged when they were much longer, uh, much younger in structured activities. So beefing that up within our community is in marketing who we are as an organization, who we are as a program, who our youth are, what their needs are, and how can the community open the doors to allow our kids to become um, engaged in positive structured activities is really important and something that we will be focusing on or are focusing on as part of our Transforming Juvenile Probation Initiative that we are partnered with the Annie EKC Foundation on currently um, because it is a gap and we need to do much better in, in expanding or opening the doors for our families with the community. 
Right now, we're trying to solidify um, a partnership with Workforce Solutions, which is our local workforce board, uh, in opening opportunities for our youth to begin gaining, our older youth in particular, gaining some valuable skills so that hopefully they can be placed in um, different employment opportunities and also even exploring some apprenticeship programs that are becoming available for that older age cohort. Um, that may not be headed to a you know to our local community college or university but may be more inclined to be interested in the vocational trades so right now we're working on establishing and formalizing that partnership through an mou that's great that was actually one of the next questions i was going to ask you is just about partnerships and you know is there anything that doesn't exist in the community right now that's like a gap in and resources or organizations that, or services that um, existed so that um, that would actually better your program in any way. Uh, if you know that offhand, if there, if there is any gap. You know, I, I'm gonna be fully transparent. I've been with the department for 20 years and we have always been pretty insulated in, in managing our cases and, and trying to be the resource for everything. And we're moving away from that philosophy um, as part of, of this transformative work that we're doing with the Annie E. Casey Foundation, because we do realize that at the end of the day, these young men and women who have made poor choices are members of our community. And we need to do that outreach as an agency um, to educate the community as to who we are and what we do. That, that perception that the probation department is there to you know, detain kids and hold them accountable and you know, be the stick, um, is not the perception that we want our community to know us by. We need the community to understand that we are, our role is to coach, to mentor, to rehabilitate while balancing the importance of accountability. So we need to get out there because it's, it's, it would not be fair for me to say we've identified gaps X, Y, and Z, or they're not available in our community because we haven't done enough work to truly identify what are the gaps. Our community is, is, is resource rich, I believe. Um, and I'm sure that through education, even if the resources are not there, we have plenty of organizations that are willing to come to the table and help us meet those needs. It's just a matter of us getting out there because El Paso is a very friendly, um, warm, community that that is committed to helping others just the mere fact that we're a border community and we're dealing with the challenges of of immigration uh, we're, we're doing the best that we can as a community as a whole and i have no doubt that there's going to be commitment and we have commitment from from stakeholders but it's just not broad enough and we need to broaden that as a as an agency to bring in more community stakeholders to open their doors and create positive opportunities for our youth and our families to become engaged in. I want to ask you, you shared about your brother, but I'm curious if you worked with anybody um, all this time that you've been working with specialty court programs. Have you come into contact with somebody who's made an impact on you? Absolutely. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we started our juvenile drug treatment court in 2004. And we started with females only. And one of our first participants, I believe she was either the second or the third female in our program, her name, and I can share her name because she's now an adult and, and has given permission to share the story. Um, her name is Tiffany Aguirre, and she is now in her 30s. And I tell her every time I see her, I hear from her that she makes me feel really old. Um, but she was a young 15 year old, um, battling her substance use issues and trauma, uh, being accepted by her family, um, because of her sexual orientation, um, had a, a lot of stuff that she was going through and she eventually, um, successfully completed our program. But I must say that it was, it was difficult and it was very challenging. She had a, a very, um, or has a, a mother who not just not supportive, um, but it was very resistant to help. And our judge had to hold the mother in contempt at one point. And mother spent almost six months in jail on contempt charges for her failure to participate in our program. And um, this very day, you know, and here we are 16, 17 years later, 
uh, and he is still in contact with me. Um, he reaches out periodically throughout the year. Um, a few years ago, reached out and wanted to get married, and we facilitated her her wedding ceremony at the juvenile probation department, and her juvenile drug court judge officiated the ceremony. Um, and it is just so heartwarming to to be part of the metamorphosis of the lives of our participants. But what's most heartwarming are those participants who return and make that effort to keep you apprised of the highs as well as, as the lows. Tiffany has, you know, kept me in the loop in one way or another through the highs and lows in her life. And I was not her probation officer. I was the program coordinator. So it is so important for those of us working in the specialty court arena that regardless of what your role may be on a team, you will never know directly the amazing impact that you make on people's lives. And it probably, you know, and, and sometimes you will know because they're going to come back and tell you, but we must always be very mindful of our interactions and the things that we say and the things that we do because it, it we, we have this opportunity um, programs to make a very lasting impression. And I obviously, I feel that I did that with Tiffany because it, you know, 16, 17 years later, if Tiffany is still in my life, I know that I did something right. And, and I've asked her and she's shared, you were always just a listening ear and always so positive and encouraging. Um, even now as an adult, you know, I, I see myself as a mentor, an adult mentor for her and, and, you know, I, I redirect her when I read, you know, I feel that I need to, but I'm also there to be her biggest cheerleader. Um, it's awesome. And, and to me, that's what's the most energizing thing and something that I share with all of my probation um, staff, my detention staff, my correctional staff, is that we always must be mindful because we are working in the, in the arena of, of, of touching children's lives, is that we have to be mindful of what we say and what we do and how we do it and how we say it because we have that opportunity to either make a child or break a child. And we will all at one point or another receive that thank you. We are, we're going to touch thousands of lives, but all it really takes is one person to come back and say thank you um, to really re-energize you and let you know that, you have, that you've made a difference and that you continue to have a purpose in this field. Thank you for sharing that. I always ask people for three recommendations to wrap up. And usually I ask for a tip um, is the first thing I ask for. And a tip is usually just something you wish you knew beforehand, something, you know, um, maybe staffing considerations, uh, things for, I don't know, system processes, um, inspirational quotes, just just a little tip that, that you'd like to share with people. And you kind of just gave a tip, but I'm going to ask you for another one in case you can think of something uh, that you think that people should should be aware of. There's, there's this powerful quote that really hits close to home for me. It was written by C.L. Lewis. And he once said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And I truly, truly believe that those of us working in the specialty court arena have an amazing opportunity to change the ending. We know what we have when they come to us and we can't change the reasons why, but we can definitely equip them with the tools that they need to process, to make better choices, to make better decisions, and truly to change their destiny. And, and we are that instrument. Um, and we have this opportunity and as, as specialty court professionals, we must embrace it and truly believe in the power of resiliency. I think that's a great tip. The next thing I want to ask you is about a good resource. And usually I summarize that with like, you know, trainings, assessment tools, websites, books, podcasts, videos, things like that. I have to share that, you know, in my career, my biggest resources for learning, of course, my, my, my nuclear team is an amazing resource. But I'm humble enough to know that 
I don't know everything and my local team doesn't know everything and that there's always a broader perspective and much more experiences than those that we experience in our jurisdiction or within our department. So networking, um, networking with different national associations is key and essential because they have so much information and different perspectives and our populations you know, are constantly evolving. So what, what may be an issue today for us in Texas was an issue in California three or four years ago, and they've already navigated those waters and being able to reach out to our network of professionals at the national level for resources for guidance only enriches us and benefits benefits our programs and then ultimately benefits our state and the impact and the footprint that we're trying to leave so you know if 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 anything my encouragement to other specialty court professionals is to reach out beyond your immediate network within your jurisdiction reach out beyond the state and make those contacts at the national level and if you can become involved become engaged on in those national associations because only through that are you able to truly enhance your programs and hopefully stay one step ahead is a great great resource um thank you for sharing that what about an important event that's my last thing i always ask for just you know is there is there an event that you think people should consider attending that maybe they haven't haven't thought about even a local event just any event that you can think of that would be good well definitely we have our task conference coming up in march and then we have the all rise conference coming up in anaheim um, this summer and you know we also have for so in the juvenile justice field um the annie e casey foundation in georgetown university have the transforming juvenile probation initiative um, applications are currently open for any jurisdictions that are open, uh, interested um, in that initiative it, it's not just it's not geared towards specialty courts but it's system transformation work um, that's very powerful um, but you also have the national council of juvenile and family court judges they put on two conferences annually and they have several other workshops and amazing webinars in the field that also touch on family drug court topics. So um, from that arena, those are, I believe, some resources that could be beneficial to the practitioners in the juvenile justice family court arena. I concur with all of that. Rosie, I am so glad that you could join us today. Thank you. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, I think this conversation uh, definitely, I feel like I learned something and I hope that the people who are listening are learning something as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. As a reminder, see our show notes to contact us and find links to information discussed today. You can also find a link to register for our annual training conference on March 26th to 28th. Some food for thought until we meet again for another episode. What do you know about your local juvenile department and the programs they utilize to serve the kids in your community? Be sure to like and subscribe to our show so you'll be notified when new episodes are available.